0: Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 30 of Music is Not a Genre, MXG. There, I did it. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please remember, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash Genre, where for as little as $5 a month, you get early releases of everything, exclusive. You get discounts on the t-shirts and all of that excellent stuff. Uh, the public hub, of course, please go like, subscribe, watch, share at YouTube.com slash at music is not a genre. My website is com, where if you go to the heading there, the menu, and go to shop, it will take you to the t-shirt store where you can buy t-shirts if you sign up for Patreon. Like I said, dot com slash music is not a genre, you get a forever discount on all t-shirts and any other merchandise. And, of course, please listen to and support my band, Rec, R-E-C, at recarea.bandcamp.com. Let's get into it this week. You know, another one I've been putting off for a while, and I'm kind of excited to get to it, because I think I may have prepared. I don't know. Uh, it's you 2 Absorb the feedback and listen through the hype. So, if you're a casual YouTube fan, welcome, and hope, hopefully you'll learn a lot. Uh, If you're a rabid U2 fan, you may know why I subtitled this episode that. I mean, there's more than one reason, as usual. But first of all, let's get to the obvious, which is in 1976, U2's original band name was Feedback. Uh, Apparently, that was the only music term they knew or some joke like that. Who knows if it's true? They then switched their name to The Hype for just a brief period. And then ended up settling on U two, I believe, by 1978. But the other reason I titled it this is because this band's been around for a long time. You get a lot of opinions, both informed and uninformed. The interesting thing about U two is that even a lot of the informed opinion opinions, in, to my mind, are uninformed or misinformed. Let's say that, and that kind of you know feedback. You're going to absorb. You will have your idea of U2, its history, what it has been, what it is now, colored by all the things that have been written. All the things that have been said uh, by U2 and by others. And to listen through that hype. To get to the music, that's really what I try to do with every episode, and I think more so even in this episode, I'm going to mention times when the hype of what was going on seems relevant to the story, but I'm always going to bring it back to the music, and I'm going to do my best to judge the breadth of their work based on simply the music and not what it was supposed to be how people characterized it all of that and i think one way to get started is to point out that if you know you two particularly as a casual fan or even not a fan and you just happen to know their songs you know with or without you or one or uh, you know beautiful day whatever it is from all the various periods of their career what you might not know is that they were super post-punk. They were post-punk, and they have some pretty serious street cred of starting out as a post-punk band, having those same influences. Uh, at least some of the members rejected progressive rock and what was going on prior to that, although some of it they did enjoy and love. They they, they didn't have this hard and fast rule that you couldn't do X or Y. The Edge was much more into progressive values, into yes, which I said on the last episode about Bono's book, uh, Surrender, if you haven't seen that, check that out. That, that will inform this episode that I would never have guessed that Yes was an influence on you 2 until you know it. And then when you know it and you listen to so much of The Edge's playing and how he arranges things, you completely get it. You completely get it, which is very cool. They also were heavily influenced by The Who, so they didn't, Fully reject classic rock, but they understood that things were moving on, and Bono in particular was not a prog rock fan. And so they were taking their cues from punk and even some of the post punk that was starting up and other things that happened to be swirling around in their culture, in their lives, and in their heads. And to me, not only do they have that cred of being a genuine post punk band, and you can say that their first three albums we hardcore post-punk, you know, serious post-punk. I, I don't want to, hardcore is a, yeah, you know, I, I, that's not what I mean. Serious post-punk, like real post-punk. And to me, they're the first band to make punk spiritual, to bring some kind of spiritual element into punk. And I'm going to mention a little bit more about that very shortly, actually. And the first band to meld the the bombast of the before like that alliteration bands like the who in particular with the fleet fire of the future some more alliteration uh the cure things like that uh joy division bands that were coming up at the time certainly the clash and the sex pistols and other bands around their area who influenced them that you know pushed them towards where a lot of bands were going which was simplicity scaling it down, stripping it back to its essence, which when you only have three instruments, you kind of have to do. And I'm going to mention something important about that in a few minutes as well. And to me, the the beginning, especially even though they were post-punk, they still had elements of ambient rock from the beginning, really partly because of what edge was doing, but also because of the choices they made in, in certain songs and the structures and the sounds and they were sideways from two contemporaneous bands, just about anyway. The Cure and, and uh, Joy Division slash New Order, where The Cure was more about personal uh, emotions and isolation and angst, and and uh, yeah, that's obviously a simplification. But especially in their beginning of their career, and had that kind of interper- like that interpersonal darkness or personal even darkness. New Order was more societal disaffection, fraught relationships, uh, you know, always worrying that something was going to fall apart, like that kind of a thing. A New Order joy division. U2 was more the psychology and spirituality mixed together than adding in politics and social issues and stuff like that. Uh, And yeah, even from the beginning, uh, especially when you read the book, you realize how many songs that are not overtly spiritual, were actually lyrically meant to be so. They, were, they, they had that element to them, which I think is something that's drawn me to them. And believe me, I'm getting into this a little more. And I'm going to say first that they're not a Christian band. That's a, that's a tough statement because, A, I'm not saying that to put down Christian rock or Christian hip-hop or Christian anything. You know, I was brought up a Catholic. I have that background. I remember Striper from the eighties. I I'm saying this. I have never been a fan of any of that music, not because it's not it's it's all crap. Some of it's very good, you know, in many different ways. And some of the artists, and even the ones who've transitioned, like Amy Grant, Katy Perry, and all of that, have done amazing things. It's more to me that I've never really been interested in music or really any kind of art that purports to have all the answers, because I don't think anybody does. And that kind of certainty and, and preachiness is just not something that I gravitate towards. And because U2 has never, in terms of a religious sense, been uh, preachy or certain about anything that disqualifies them from being a Christian rock band, not to mention They, you know, most of their songs are not about spirituality or or anything. Uh, They're all very, or grew to become, pretty anti-religious. So, and that to me is a huge distinction. If you're a Christian rock band or religious, when you're spiritual, doesn't necessarily mean you adhere to any particular religion. Now, Bono in his book, and I'm sure some of the other band members, extremely Catholic or Protestant or whichever they were brought up in, and and really do, uh, you know, at least understand and know a lot of what was going on in the Bible, but they have a personal interpretation that might often defy what some of the tr- various churches say about how the scripture should be interpreted, et cetera. I don't want to get into this, you know, too much, but yes, as they they almost always Christian rock bands also mention Jesus all the time and not just to, to say the name or, you know, questioning in any certain way, it's always about praise and being worthy of that praise. And you too has certainly tackled a lot of spirituality and mentioned religion and even mentioned Jesus. There's always uncertainty. There's always some questioning. There's always, you know, uh, faith is strengthened by doubt. If you can examine your doubt, your faith is strengthened. And they combine faith with feeling They and with using your brain. It's not blind True faith struggles with doubt all the time, which is what all of the spiritual U2 songs do, which is what a lot of the U2 songs do. There's a there's an internal struggle, which I mentioned last week about that the kind of chiaroscuro, you know, like having the dark with the light. It's like constantly needing to exercise or, you know, the, you you think, oh, I'm in shape now I'm done. I don't need to do it. If that's how you feel about your, your faith, then it will curdle into something that isn't real anymore, you know? Uh, or if you're constantly needing to fight off the the demons of addiction, you know the, the psychology and, and the physicality of being addicted to something, uh, you're always in recovery. And to me, that's the idea of having trying to have faith, which is not something that I'm excellent at at all. Is that the work is never done. Uh, And and just a side note, because I've mentioned it a couple of times, you can get a lot of insight into this band by reading Bono's book, Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story. It is from his point of view, but I believe he tries to do his best to, you know, spread the love and share the perspectives and all of that and be as true to things as possible. But he'll, he'll be the first to tell you that, you know, there were embellishments and there were things that were his opinion, et cetera, et cetera. So that aside, I'll probably mention that subject here and there as I go through the discography, but that's important to state up front.
1: Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
2: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
1: And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month, so just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
0: The next thing that's important to state up front is that I have a huge bias. Okay, if you're If you're coming for uh, some objective judgment of the band, you should probably look elsewhere, uh, especially if you're coming for, you know, trying to find some, uh, I don't know, criticisms that tear the band down, etc. That's not going to be me. I fell into their music in 1985. The reason I have this, for those of you just listening, I have the LP version of The Unforgettable Fire featured here in my little diorama. Along with several other LPs, and behind that, almost all of the CDs that they've ever released, that's the album that I fell in love with. It, to the point fact that that Joshua Tree was uh, was in the beginning a disappointment to me because of how much I loved Unforgettable Fire, but we'll get there. I'll talk about that later. And and once I fell in love with the, that album and all the all sort of Homecoming, Bad, and all those songs. I never I never turned my back on them. I've been following them ever since. Uh, I went backwards and got into their uh, previous three albums, the main albums and some of the live stuff and all that, and then followed them forward every single step of the way. I've seen them, I believe, six times in concert uh, since 87, Joshua Tree Tour, uh, Pop Mart, Elevation, Vertigo, U-2-360, which is where this shirt is from, if you're just listening, it's got that drippy equal sign, and it's from uh, No Line on the Horizon 2009, and uh, the Innocence and Experience tour. So that's a lot. I, I honestly wish I've seen them more live, and I will see them again when they put out an album of new material, for sure. So that's my bias there. You're going to get it. But I'm also going to have a kind of a musician's judgment of, well, here's what they were doing. here are the things that work the best. I'm going to throw a lot of opinion in here and kind of like all the all the episodes are, uh, but certainly a bias will be there. Some points before I get to the to the discography, I would like you a challenge to you: name another band with longevity, let's say. 10 years minimum, who's had the same exact members, no more, no additions, no fewer, you know, no replacements of anybody, who has also consistently released new material every every few years, new material and material that in, is intended to move the band and the musical conversation forward is released without once breaking up, without once going on hiatus, and to have done it for over 40 years. I'm fairly sure that there is no other band. I've looked that up. I've seen some lists. There are a few bands that have, I won't even say come close. You know, you could talk about a band like Radiohead who's certainly been together, well, 30-some years, right? And U2 has almost 10 years on them, about 10 years on them, let's say. I believe Radiohead may get there someday. And they are certainly a band who always releases new material and tries to move the, the ball forward, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but other than that, I defy you. I, in fact, if you can name a band who's had greater longevity with the same exact people releasing new material consistently, never broken up, longer than you two, I'll give you a free t-shirt. That's my challenge to you. The another point, I often disagree with critics on them. I feel like critics of a certain color are always trying to find the negative to claim that they were the ones who uh, pulled back the veil and, and took down the you know the big uh, God, you know, whatever it is. And I've said this before. I've talked about. Negativity for the sake of negativity is not a good thing. I will agree with a good friend of mine, Steve Erickson, that you should not be positive for the sake of being positive, nor should you shill for the band of the company by just painting everything you know with bright colors. Honesty to me is what I'm looking for, and I think if you skew negative because it's sensational and you, you know you feel better than thou or whatever, or if you are like everything they do is absolute golden and, and this is a perfect album or whatever it is, then you're not a real critic or you're not acting like a real critic, okay? And that's what I'm trying to bring here. I'm not just a blind acolyte. I understand the arc of the band, their the, the you know the ebb and flow of their creativity, of their career, of all of that, the different changes, the ways they've shifted. And that's what I really am excited to go through for this episode. Uh, but yeah there are so many times that uh, you know critics just don't get it and I think they deliberately don't get it because a band this big is easy to uh, knock down I've looked at a lot of U2 album rankings and I sort of agreed with sort of some of sort of the rankings but not any of all of them and not even the way you normally you'd be like oh I think you know, album number four should be number eight or vice versa. The general thrust of a lot of what those rankings said, I just disagree with. Um, To me, it was clear that if an album once had either a stigma or heaps of praise, they kind of just copy and paste that feeling with little variation. You know, so Pop, which I think is an unfairly maligned album, I'm not saying it's their best, but it's unfairly malign, is usually ranked I think too close to the to the bottom whereas an album like uh, I don't know Octung Baby is almost categorically there the listed first on every list. And I understand it, but I th- I think that I take issue with the fact that it seems like there's a lot of a cookie cutter with both the positive and the negative. To me, the biggest mistakes, again, they dismiss pop too easily. They don't give October and Zuropa the credit they deserve. And I'll talk about those in the discography. Uh, they barely dig into any of the last few albums, No Line on the Horizon and Songs of Innocence, Songs of Experience, uh, and then the new the new one I'll talk about later. It's that same elitist attitude of the past was better. Uh I like them, but I only like their early stuff uh newer stuff of course is harder to absorb because we haven't lived with it for as long but if you are doing your job you will do your best to absorb it as much as you can before you pass judgment on it and while i won't say that any of their recent albums uh rank you know probably in the top five for me i would not put them at the bottom five either uh They usually get the big bangs right, like "Boy," "War," "Unforgettable Fire," "Joshua Tree," uh, Octung Baby," all that you can't leave behind, and they generally get that kind of mixed feeling of rattle and hum right. And I mean, I'm what do I say? What do I know? I'm saying they're right, they're wrong. I'm judging too, and the same with "How to Dismantle Atomic Bond." They kind of get that right. They've gotten to me, I believe, "Songs of Surrender" right so far, from what I've read. But the biggest mistake I think is judging YouTube based. On their biggest albums and not on their music as a whole, because if you understand uh, the music and know the music and understand what they have always been trying to do, you realize that a band as a whole is so much more than just the, the hits and the things that have uh, resonated with the culture. Here's another one. And this, hey, if this stirs up controversy, I'm happy about it. I'm, I'm trying to start something here. Because there are a lot of rock people out there, hopefully some of them are watching right now, and this might really kick you in a place you don't like. And that is, U2 is not on any power trio lists. Letting that sink in. Because I'm sure a lot of you are saying, well, they're a a foursome. Right. How many instruments do they play consistently through their recordings, etc.? live bass drums guitar Do they sound like Cream or Rush or so many of the other bands that are consistently listed on uh the best power trios and rightfully so? No. But that to me again is a bias because they've never been just a straight up rock band. You know, those elements of po- post-punk and disco and so many other things that have always been a part and ambient you know, of their music, a lot of hardcore rock people dismiss them because of that. And to me, it's why I love them more, because they're willing to go to all those places and can still rock out. And I've seen them live, and I've seen them play just the three instruments. And if you look up the definition of a power trio, it is a band that, whose, whose music is created by bass, drums, and guitar. So, I mean, I think that needs to be corrected. And if there are other bands out there who have four people but only three of them play instruments, bass, drums, guitar, I think that they should be on the list too. They should be considered a power trio because it's not about the vocals. That's not, the, you never hear in descriptions of power trios that it's uh, bass, drums, guitar, and vocals. It's about the instruments. you know. So whether one of those three is singing or not, to me it's still a power trio. Uh, and then... Huge nod to some of the producers who have worked with them. Steve Lillywhite to start out, and then later on, Daniel Lenoir and Brian Eno off and on forever, and Flood for a while there in the middle, who've all done interesting and important things with the band and for the band. And there have been others here and there, but those, I think, are the main people producer-wise who've really shaped this band and worked with them. All right, I'm going to need to figure out how to deal with this diorama because I'm doing my chronography, my discography, and the first thing I'm going to do is pull Unforgettable Fire off the, out of the fire and it reveal my huge stack of discs, my stack of CDs, and start with the first album from 1980, which I'll do LP-wise. Here you go. You can see the back of it, that stretched-out drawing of them. Boy, of course. Out of the gate, just an absolute powerhouse album. I'm throwing these in the floor. So if you hear some bangs, it's I'm gonna have a stack of stuff I'll have to trip over when I'm done with this. And they were barely 20 years old. They had a few singles and EP and etc. a little bit before then, but they put this album out, and the from the first song, they were doing something new. And as I said last week. That was their intention was to find a sound that no one had quite ever done before by using elements of a lot of things that anyone had done before. And That's how a lot of the best music is made is that amalgamation for like the quote that I mentioned last week. Watch last week's episode. I'll keep referring to it. Uh, some of my favorites on this album. I mean, that kind of post-punk driving rhythmic energy just again the three instruments and to create that kind of a sound making interesting production choices from the beginning with the clinking of the glasses and stuff and I will follow this all of that uh, even doing immediately some ambient stuff makes this I think one of the important albums uh, of this band and of that period I will follow uh, Ankat Dub and I know I've pronounced that wrong because I can't pronounce uh, Gaelic uh, Segueing into into the heart that one-two punch of ambient is something that just sunk into my entire body when i heard it out of control stories for boys the electric those are some of my favorites from this album and then we get to yeah an album i think that has you know been a little controversial critic wise and maybe no place else and that is october uh, I don't think this opens up, so I'll just flip it and show you the boat, whatever. And the same thing here, U2, October. That's the uh, CD version. I'll keep doing that until I run out of LPs and CDs. 1981. That This album, October, is the album that probably uh, U2-wise meant the most to me in college. Because of its dark ambience. And it's frequent use of piano. I was primarily a piano player back then. Uh, I find that it's underrated. I find that it is actually bold for a band to come out of the gate like they did with Boy and then and then shift to something much more kind of understated and ambient on October with still some of that element of post-punk, you know, punch. And... Is a precursor to the work they did with Brian Eno. I don't think Brian Eno would have been as interested in working with them if he hadn't heard that they were already exploring ideas like this before. Particularly on this album, which, what to me, is what makes this album one of the most important. And I'll mention it again way later on in this list. Uh, Gloria, uh, what another op? What a great opener! Fading in, which is cool. Huge. For me, it's a huge song. It is absolutely amazing. Live, I Threw a Brick Through a Window is excellent. Uh, Tomorrow in October, again, just beautiful, heartfelt, ambient work. October, I played on the piano all the time. I mean, it's something I couldn't resist. With a Shout and Stranger in a Strange Land, also great songs. If there are other songs in these albums that you love, I want to hear from you. Or if you disagree with my choices. The third album, this is going to get easier, believe me. Uh, Is war, you know, and this one does open up. Oh, so you know, nineteen eighty-three. This is the CD version. I keep doing that. I've got to throw them on the floor. Uh, Monumental, you know. It was to me. I mean, you could say October, but but with October, they were still young. They were still kind of exploring what it meant to be that band, and they didn't necessarily understand the kind of um, impact and reaction that That they would get from the industry and the fans and et cetera, et cetera, war to me was the album that said that where they said to the world et cetera to themselves, and successfully so that we're not just going to meander about doing the work that we want to do without some consideration of how it fits into the picture as a whole of how it fits into the picture of the career of success, of what's going on in the culture. And it is the album that I believe uh, is when all of what they were doing on Boy in October October, and what they were trying to achieve first came together. And I don't think there's one skippable track. And it's one of the most influential for me because it showed me that real rock music could be real dance music. You've got your just dance music, you've got your just rock music that's not danceable in any great sense. Or if it's danceable, it's not meant to be dance music, that four on the floor kind of sound. But you also have dance music with rock elements, you know, or rock music with a little bit of danceiness in there. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about songs that are out and out, full on rock and full on dance. And when you think of songs like New Year's Day and Two Hearts Beat as One, that's what they are. And it showed me what I already knew, which is that anyone who believed that disco and dance music and high energy and no wave and all the things that were going on at the time was somehow anathema to rock music, was biased in, to me, a very prejudiced way, often a racist way, whatever you want to say, but certainly from an, a musical elitist way of saying, well, you know, rock rules and screw everything else. And I've always hated that attitude. You know that if you've listened to Rex music. And this album might have been the first one to prove that to me, even more so than New Order, who always came across as much more electronic to me, even though they were band-based as well. Uh, We Spun, my partner and I at the time, New Year's Day, Two Hearts, and Sunday Bloody Sunday and a lot of our DJ sets for, you know, parties and dances and stuff like that. And they fit in seamlessly. No one batting an eyelash when we would put them on with all the other stuff that was, you know, that would normally spin uh, at that time as a DJ. So, yes, Sunday Bloody Sunday. Seconds takes a second to say goodbye is, I mean, I forgot how great that song is. New Year's Day. Ah, uh, the refugee man. Listen to that. If you don't know you two, listen to the refugee, and you'll be like, "That's the same band." Yeah, you know. If all you know is "With or Without You" or whatever, listen to that. Two Hearts, Speed is one. Red Light, yeah. And then Forty. To me, it's great on the album, great ender, but way better live. And there was a transcendent moment in that 1987 concert that I saw. When they played that live and everybody singing along with it to where they stopped singing and just let the audience sing and all of that stuff. It's also the first album of theirs where they were overtly political. So although they'd add other elements later on, this sort of, you know, this was a very important establishment in their, you know, creative career, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, under a blood red sky I have, because I was a completist at the time, and it this is an interesting thing because it's a live album and i bought it because i was a huge youtube fan and wanted to get everything i possibly could and it was before uh joshua tree had come out so i was voracious and what and i wanted it because i knew 11 o'clock tiktok was on there and i hadn't heard the song before and that was worth it but what's interesting is this is the live album that one of my favorite live albums which is not hard to do because I don't like live albums in general. And this may have been the album that find, that, that that first convinced me that a live albums just aren't my thing. Because you can't replicate the live experience on any kind of recording anyway. And I applaud people for trying. And if you're capturing a moment, great. But I like recordings to be recordings and you know, live to be live. And so it's funny that this isn't a live album I like that then pretty much turned me off of any other live album, which brings me to the, the the monument, the the whatever, the unforgettable fire. When I hold in particular the LP in my hand, because it was the first one I got, I feel of the moment of the night the mid 1980s. I feel uh even younger in a sense. I feel hotter. Like there are Feelings coursing through me that happened just simply from seeing the cover of that. I can't understate the importance of this album for me and for understanding that, especially compared to everything else that was going on at the time, this album was breathtaking. And of course, yes, Brian Eno, Daniel Lenoir, come in. Uh, I'm, I put that up because, yes, it's probably still my all time number one favorite album of theirs. I'm sure there's close second, third, and fourth, which I'll get to. Uh, it's interesting that I read in Bono's book that one of the things they set out to do, I think, you know, prompted them was don't use any minor chords. Don't be the typical, well, you've done that before. They did it to amazing effect uh, with New Year's Day and Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and the War album and certain minor stuff prior to that. Can you create? that sense of urgency and angst and and uh, contemplation and even a the degree of negativity without resorting to the typical minor chords. What a great challenge for any music creator. Uh, it's one I've taken on at times, and uh, I'm sure it's in large part because of this album. My favorite's A sort of Homecoming. Again, what an amazing opener. And you know it's time to go uh pride you know name of love despite the original uh you know lyric that was incorrect about the exact time of mlk's death uh the unforgettable fire song uh title song the that the whole title was gotten from uh an art exhibit about hiroshima i believe uh bad which to this day when i listen to i tear up if the i mean if the you know, conditions are right. If I can hear everything, it's good. Speakers are good headphones. Um, and then MLK, if you don't know this song, sure, it's a companion to Pride, but it's very different, and it just, it will give you chills. It's, again, that kind of ambient, you know, and there's a lot of wailing on this song and some very uh, upbeat kind of higher energy stuff, but it's that ambience and the haunted ambience that still has elements of hope to it, that make this a classic, you know. It should be, I think, minimum top two hundred on anybody's list of all time albums. And then da da, UEP again, completest. Wide awake in America it was the last thing I could get before the the quote unquote new album was coming out at the time, so I bought it. And that's what I'll say about that. It, I think you go ahead and listen to it because you can do that for f- almost free now these days. But I wouldn't say go out and buy that, which brings to the you know elephant in the room and the one that a lot of people define you to by, which I think is understandable and both a shame and that is the Joshua Tree. Excellent as always. They've always done their utmost with the artwork, with the photographs. Uh, Anton Corbin, I believe. I don't know if that's said right, but amazing uh slightly less amazing the you know c d not quite as monumental art wise but they still try to capture it. that was nineteen eighty seven and like I said, I was initially disappointed by this album i I loved unforgettable fire so much that when this album came out and I saw it was a more i'll say accessible you know and more open in terms of their sonic qualities and what they were pulling from uh i it it hit me like ah oh, man i wanted more of forget, but i grew to love it fairly quickly especially after i saw them live and again i think this is an album with not one skippable track and what i'll say about it because a lot has been said i don't need to say much is that people start talking about um, U2's love of America when, you know, with particularly rattle and hum because they went so far into American music. But of course, America's all over Joshua Tree. You know, when you listen to, uh, bullet and the bullet, the blue sky and just the, the reverence for that word. But it's also on war. Listen to the, you know, refugee, to the song, the refugee I mentioned America a few times. And and the Sound of America wasn't necessarily on war, but the Sound of America was already infiltrating what they were doing on the Joshua Tree. So to me, rattle and hum was just a kind of breathing it out extension of the Joshua Tree. It wasn't this, you know, left left turn. And some favorites. Where, where the streets have no name, still found what they're looking for, with or without you. With or without you is interesting because. It's a song that you would expect to get so played out that when you hear it, you're like, "Eh." but two things. One, it doesn't, at least not for me. For some reason, there's still so much subtlety in it that it grips you and brings you along in a way that uh, doesn't make you kind of gloss over with the familiarity of it. And two, that was intended because they, like I said last week, their original version of it was a little too poppy because they went too, too much for the big chorus too soon. And when they rearranged it, it's, it is what it is. And that's, I think, why it has such staying power. Bullet the Blue Sky. Uh, I, I have many times and almost probably every year of my life at some point said 100, uh, 200. And if you know that song, you know what I'm talking about, especially when it comes to, you know, uh, putting bills out on the table. I don't know. Whatever. Um uh yeah, uh, Red Hill Mining Town is a huge one. I think I might be missing one because I have some weird misprint here. Um, no, yeah, no, that's right. Uh, In God's Country and One Tree Hill, all amazing. And yeah, if you didn't know that One Tree Hill was a song before it was a TV show, well, now you know. Quick segue into a single that they put out this same year, 87. Uh, was a version that they were just messing around with in the studio of the song Christmas Baby Please Come Home which anytime I do this song I do their version because even though a lot of versions have been done of this and a lot of them have been very very good including the original I find this to be the best and my favorite. Uh, There's a thing that Bono does at the end that I always thought at the time was part of the original in some way where he goes baby please come home and it's not something he made up. So if anybody else does that, it's because of Bono, uh, the single. So getting down on to the end of the LPs and continuing on with the CDs, and I haven't dropped anything yet, accidentally, Rattle and Hum, the first album of theirs that I, to me is that became controversial because they had hit it big, and then they all of a sudden said, we're just going to do some stuff that really feels good to us. We're going to try to burst... Somewhat the bubble of uh, us being this big kind of, you know, godlike band and just come down to earth a little bit and do some things that are a little more bluesy and rocky and whatever. I think it's, again, I won't say it's underrated. I think it's rated. I think it's usually rated correctly, which is it's not a cohesive album. It's not meant to be. There's live tracks on there and and cover songs uh, all along the Watchtower and all these other things. But it has a lot of awesome tracks on there anyway. And their foray into more American sounds, I think they're given kind of a bad rap in that. They're, oh, you're trying to be American. I think they were doing the parts of American music that they loved because anybody... Who listens to songs like, um, you know, Angel of Harlem, Desire, When Love Comes to Town with BB King, and says that not knowing the band, never having heard the songs, and says that's American music, then Ditch doesn't know music. Because to me, it is clearly U2 music with American uh, elements and American influence. And so, yeah, Desire, Angel of Harlem, When Love Comes to Town, BB King, all good songs. I won't say that any of those are my favorites. I've performed Angel of Harlem. I think Desire's you know, uh, rhythm was important because it's, a st- it's kind of stuff that they would do a lot more later on. But to me, the big one, and the one that's worth the price of admission for this album is All I Want Is You. And if you don't know that song, A, you're not a U2 fan, and B, you probably aren't judging U2 correctly. Uh, it's one of those songs That is priceless. It's just priceless. Quick segue. A couple years later, they were on the Red Hot and Blue charity compilation doing songs of, I think, just Cole Porter. And they did the single Night and Day. It's probably the most haunting version of that song. It's not an all out perfect version of the song, but it is unique. They made it their own. And if you don't know, look up Red Hot and Blue 1990 and YouTube's version of Night and Day, and you'll understand what I mean. It's, it's, yeah, it's more haunting. It's, to me, as haunting as the original probably was when it first came out to the people who, who heard it at the time in context, which, of course, brings us to another elephant, Octung Baby. When you look at it, you even already know that it's a change for them And I'm unfolding it. For those of you just uh, listening, I'm unfolding the CD. I don't have any more LPs. You know, we all stop doing things at a certain point. And this is when they knew, well, Rattle Home was fine. The movie was so-so. We did what we did with the stuff we did in the 80s. We need to shift. What are we going to do? We need to bring some new elements into our music because we don't want to become stale. We don't want to become behind the times and be left behind as just a great 80s band like an excess and who did have some hits in the nineties, but really people think of them as an eighties band, etc. And so, you know, they challenged themselves to bring some new stuff to the table. Went to Hansa Studios where David Bowie did a lot of the Berlin trilogy. Went back to Eno and Lenoir, And to me it's sort of their first quote unquote comeback album because after rattling on, people were like, oh, the YouTube bubble burst, you know. And then this comes out and it's often ranked higher than Joshua tree and often considered better by a lot of people like Joshua tree. I honestly was at first disappointed in this album, uh, but not as much. I, I knew you knew from the beginning they were doing something different and I couldn't, I, I was looking more for that breathtaking sound that they had had. And there's some of that on there, but they knew that if they kept doing that, they'd just become a caricature of themselves and they didn't just try to modernize their sound and and pull from what was going on at the time they did it and they did it well and as they've done throughout their career they expanded their palette even more if you know you're going to know things like who's going to ride your wild horses and of course one you know and mysterious ways but if you don't know the album listen to zoo station that that to me is i think the defining the song that defines how different they were. And it's the opener. Again, a great opener. Uh, Until the end of the world is also great, even better than the real thing. The fly is awesome. And uh love that character. It's a very Bowie-esque thing. Trying to throw your arms around the world. Ultraviolet is sort of like this is what we used to do in the 80s, but we're gonna do it in a 90s way because it's where it has a bit of that breathtakingness. Acrobat is something they had never done before. Love is blindness. Uh, is to me a precursor to a lot of what they do upcoming. And then you have, just don't talk to me. Because if you don't like this album, then actually then do talk to me, because I want to know why. I'd like to hear why. Because this, to me, ranks, I'm going to probably say, as one of my top three favorite albums from U2, and that's Europa. You know, Flood comes in, the Edge comes in as a producer, which he would do periodically, uh, although not often. I I loved this album to death. To me, it was we, we took a toe and did our thing in Octung Baby, still holding on to some of what we did in the 80s, but mixing it up and doing it in a, in a different way. Let's just ditch that and just do it into its fullest and be weird in the best ways songs like zuropa songs like numb which is uh penned uh, lyrically by the edge and i think it's important to point out at this juncture that you know a we should give full credit for the edge as being an innovative guitarist but b we do not know unless you really know the band how important the edge is as a singer that his contribution to the band, when you hear those harmonies and those doubles, it's not, it's rarely, if ever, Bono do, doubling himself or harmonizing with himself. It's the edge doing it. And he has that kind of wonderfully pure voice that has a really nice rounded tone and is, yeah, I think it's important to point out. Lemon. Man, you hear, they hear that song and you were like, oh, they've left the past behind. Stay, Far Away, So Close, one of my favorites. I said that last week. I'm saying it now. And I'm saying it particularly because there are two featured songs at the end of this episode. One of them is my live version of Stay. Daddy's Gonna Pay for Your Crash Car. Uh, you, know, we, you know, weird song. They knew it wasn't meant to be a single or anything like that. Or if it was, not a hit. But it's worth it to be like oh oh yeah this is you too too some days are better than others excellent song top to bottom the first time is nice dirty day is is slinky you know it's it's subversive uh and i sort of like the wanderer with but mainly because johnny cash was on and it was nice that they worked with him and and did a spotlight of him i won't say it's my favorite of theirs but a couple years later They do a single for the Batman Forever soundtrack in 95. uh, Zuropa was 93. And it's Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. It was one of my favorite songs of that year. And I think it's their best non-album track, hands down. Uh, You can talk about all the other ones and even, you know, Ordinary Love that almost won the Oscar. I think this is their their top. This was, uh, and to me, important because it was like the connector between the experimenting that they were doing with the general rock sound on Octung Baby and Zuropa to the more electronic lean-in that they did on pop. And if you don't know this song, check it out. I should have put the soundtrack in with the mix, but I forgot. Uh, Original Soundtracks 1, which they did under the pseudonym Passengers with Brian Eno as partly not just a producer but composer in many of them, uh, I just listened to. I hadn't really listened to it before. And it's interesting to me they it's ambient. Of course it is. It has some, that experimental nineties, you know, feel that what, what two was doing at the time. It has a post rock feel to it, which was something that was really coming up at the time. And it's called original soundtracks, even though there were music to films that didn't exist. A couple of years before, Olivia Tremor controls Dusk Acuba's Castle, music from the unrealized film. So I I always wonder, was that just in the air at the time, or did OTC here uh, get that idea from original soundtracks? Were a lot of people doing it? I don't know. But it fits right in their experimental phase, and that phase where... Tenors like Andrea Bocelli were having pop hits all over the freaking place. So they did Miss Sarajevo with Luciano Pavarotti at Pavarotti's uh, behest. uh, So far as it says in the book. And again, yeah, that's not one of my favorite songs, but apparently it was amazing live when Pavarotti did it. And it's interesting that they put it on there because why the hell not? You know, Uh, but listening through to it just quickly slug. I like Corpse. Uh, subtitle I forget, Elvis 8 America and Theme from Let's Go Native are some of the ones I like from that album. Worth checking out, you know. And then we come to another controversial album. Oh. Yeah, what the heck did I do here? Um. Yeah, that's right. So, it's Pop. And I have a bunch here. I have Pop, the CD, right? And I have the an EP and some remixes of tech and a remix of uh, Staring at the Sun, I guess, which has some of the Besides, I think one was from uh, original soundtracks the Passenger's album. Flood, again, did this. So they were really shifting into different stuff. Uh, Howie B and Steve Osborne, to me, were brought in as the electro experts, you know, even though Flood knew some of that too. I feel like this album was saying, okay, cool. We don't need to be any more successful than we are. We're just going to go do what we do. Right now, we want to do do what we want. We're still going to try to tap into something that's going on at the time, which was the you know EDM was burgeoning and all of that stuff. Uh, we're going to go farther with the electronics, etc. We're going to again ditch our history and roll the dice. And even though they say a lot of the album they feel was unfinished and not to, to where the they wanted it to be, in some ways, this is their most intriguing album because it has been, to me, analyzed the least because it's dismissed so quickly. And even though it's not my favorite, this was 1997, and I absorbed it to a high degree. Like, this is not, you know, again, not top five, something that maybe I shouldn't have absorbed absorbed as much. Uh, it sunk into me in in just an interesting way. And I think it was because I was like, what are they doing? Are they doing this? Are they doing that? Where's you 2 in here? Oh, there they are. And oh, now I'm triangulating this signal and figuring this out. And there were way more great songs on this album than anyone might remember. So sure. Does it hold together as one of their best albums? No. But again, it has some great singles and just great songs. And it's probably their most 70s album, which you have to listen to it to understand what I mean about that. Uh, Discotheque, If God Will Send His Angels Staring at the Sun, which is different from most of the album and most of their catalog, and a, and a big hit. Last Night on Earth, Gone, which really influenced me because I, I wrote a song, I'm Gone, which is not doesn't really sound like Gone, but it, the idea kind of came from that. Miami is Weird. It's a song I wanted to dislike, but I ended up, loving it if you wear that velvet dress i was like oh they're doing this okay and that's interesting and then please i hear the live version of please in my head because it's wailing and even though it's decent on you know i think there might be even a remix that's better but it's a good song in general and then you get the first of two compilations uh the best of 1980 to 1990 from 1998 which featured uh, a redo of a B-side from the 80s. that uh, was a throwaway song, which they turned into a hit called The Sweetest Thing. Uh, again, not my favorite song of theirs, but a cool one to have in an interim year. And at the time I was thinking, okay, you two has settled into that elder statesman, kind of like, you know, we've been here a while. We don't really need hits anymore, but they were there before and they... They fooled us all. And they did it again in 2000 with All That You Can't Leave Behind because they're restless. They don't want to just settle for being the band that was. They want to be the band that is and is becoming and always is. And All That You Can't Leave Behind, they say, oh, went back to their roots. And in a lot of ways it did, but it was in a new place, certainly of the moment of 2000. And again, another comeback album, quote unquote. Uh, Back to Eno and Lamois. And it showed me that I was wrong about where they were. It showed the world that they weren't just going to go gently into that good night. And it's the second most amazing concert experience I've had behind, beside uh, the Joshua Tree yeah, tour. have uh, even trumped the Joshua Tree tour because it was so unexpected. And I saw it after 9-11. So all the names were scrolling and all that. Absolutely incredible. And that's the moment when Beautiful Day became a forever song for me, even more so than just hearing it on the album uh stuck in a moment you can't get out of about michael hutchins i talked about that last week if you don't know why it's about him or what bono thinks of it read the book or watch my episode from last week elevation excellent walk on is if you if you don't know it to me it's probably the second best uh uh, song on the album in a little while is a really fun song that is unexpected wild honey and new york Not because it's an amazing song, but because at that time, when it came out in early 2000, I had already planned to move to New York. So anyone who was also enamored of New York, I loved. Compilation from 2002, uh, best of 1990 to 2000. Uh, They had two new songs, Electrical Storm, which is an excellent song. I I really thought, uh, you know, it was like... Oh, they hadn't left behind their experimental stuff from the 90s. They were just, you know, shifting the way they want to. They also, the hands of Build America uh, also uh, knew on that. And then you get this, how to dismantle Atomic Bomb, which to me sh- showed, you know, again, the world that they weren't just going to settle for one comeback album. They were going to continue to try to push things forward. It won nine Grammys. This album from 2004 won 9 Grammys. It won all of the Grammys that it was up for. So, uh, and it's interesting that they went back to Steve Lillywhite after not having worked with him since the first 3 albums. War would be the last one because they wanted that harder-hitting sound the way they used to have. And it is harder-hitting, it's also darker. And I love, and I think I loved the fact that they leaned into that after the brightness of all that you can't leave behind i think it's what one thing they do best is always kind of do the yin and the yang and sometimes all at once and sometimes back to back vertigo yeah i silly beginning whatever awesome loved it love the i i pod commercials i believe which they set up miracle drug sometimes you can't make it on your own city of blinding lights i still yeah it's a beautiful song and a very much old school for them one of their longer breaks, they get to No Line on the Horizon. Again, always making an effort to make interesting art. So I'm showing you people, if you're just listening, you can just look it up, frankly. So I'm not providing much of a service there. Uh, and it was the first one to use a combination of Eno, Lenoir, and Lily White. And I think it's underrated. I understand why it's not anybody's favorite. But I think that it is unfairly put closer to the bottom of the list when it is an incredibly strong album album, and deliberately different from what they were doing before. They revisit the ambient sound, but in a much darker way and in a harder way. There's a, there's a hardness and darkness to the ambience that is is captivating and different from what they had done before largely there's a little bit of that on passengers or original soundtracks or whatever uh and it opens up with what where are they what are they doing no line on the horizon that's a bold opener magnificent is a great song unknown caller get on your boots is really fun and stand-up comedy Uh, I, i like that too uh and then in the midst of their longest album break they released the single Ordinary Love which I believe was for the Nelson Mandela documentary. It was nominated for an Oscar and lost out to Frozen's Let It Go, which they say Bono says it should have lost out. Great. Um and I th- and I think Pharrell's Happy might have been out for some reason that time in an in a in a movie and nominated for an Oscar. Good song though, and a good version on the new album which I'll get to shortly. Songs of Innocence Longest break, a little longer than the break between uh, How to Dismantle and No Line, um, a little like five years, almost six years, I believe. Danger Mouse was the producer. And I did a Danger Mouse episode a while ago. And I've, like I've told you, there are things he does I love. And there are things he does production wise for other artists that I don't think hit. And I think that that's what happened with this album, in that. They started out with Danger Mouse and felt like they needed to bring other things into it. And so worked with Flood and several other producers to finish it to their satisfaction. And I do think ultimately they came out with a good album. Again, I think this is unfairly rated. Uh, There's so many good things on here. And sure, it's that typical U2 is being, you know, somewhat overblown, Songs of Innocence. But you understand what they're doing. And if you know that it was based on William Blake, as was Songs of Experience, then you kind of get what they're trying to do. And if you also understand, there's always a bit of a tongue and a bit of a cheek. You can have more fun with this stuff and just take it at face value. And also, uh, you know, not pardon my French, but fuck the Apple controversy. Like, seriously, fuck it. 2014, they worked with Tim Cook to have this release for free to everybody's iTunes account. And everybody got all up in arms. And I'm going to say it this way. Sure, I'm a YouTube fan, but you can't use that. That's not fair. What if, you may know historically, I'm not a big fan of Kid Rock, right? You know, let's start, not a fan of him or his music. If I had delivered to me a free Kid Rock album, I would do one of two things. I would just out of curiosity listen to it see what's there cuz i i don't like to dismiss things i haven't heard <laughs> or i would just say ah, i'm really not into this and delete it end of story end of any supposed controversy and you too is quick to say they screwed up and they some kind of invasion of privacy whatever no no, an invasion of privacy is stealing somebody's social security number or credit card number or whatever it is, getting something free delivered to you that, yeah, sure, you didn't ask for, or maybe didn't want, but that doesn't physically or in any other way infiltrate your life. That's not an invasion. It's a minor inconvenience. So anyway, um... Miracle of Joe Ramone is not bad. I always wanted to like it more, and I was worried when I started with that, started the album. I was like, uh uh-oh. But then Every Breaking Wave. California, I absolutely love. And Song for Someone, probably top five. You know, I did that. I showed you the version last week. I do live. I will always love that song. The fact that in 2013, they could create a song that gripped me as much as bad or All I Want Is You, hands down, you know iris excellent about his mother raised by wolves excellent and shows that they still had the fire and were trying to you know continue on with the kind of harder sound from their earlier in their career and cedarwood road is a song that grows on you uh they put out a single shortly after that the following year uh invisible which is a very nice song really good song and worth listening to uh songs of experience come came in 2017 also had an insane number of producers and like with the last album, this often indicates to me that an artist doesn't know what direction they want to go in. uh, And they were searching for it. And when you're searching for it while you're doing an album, it's often when you end up with a lot of different producers, you know, Uh, it's often regarded as better than its companion. And I honestly find it one of their stronger albums. I, I want to say I might throw it into the, it's hard, but definitely at the top half of the list, Uh, I think it's way underrated by most critics. I think that they're like, oh, U2's old and they're doing stuff that sounds like U2 or whatever else. It's like a valedictory album. They revisit almost all of their old sounds and all the things that they were doing, but in new ways, in more mature ways. Uh, And again, another interesting start. Starter, love is all we have left. Uh, Lights of Home, excellent song. You're the Best Thing About Me is really fun. And it was like, they were doing kind of a modern take on the stuff they used to do. Get Out of Your Own Way, probably my favorite most recent song of theirs, if that makes any sense, and one that I could listen to all the time. American Soul, really fun, and, and I think better than the Joey Ramon, if you see what I mean. They To me, they're companions. Summer of Love is fun, especially when you realize it's not about what you think it is. Red Flag Day is such an old U2 song, but done so organically that you, I, how could I not love it? The Little Things That Give You Away and Love Is Bigger Than Anything In Its Way, also excellent songs. Uh, then they take a large break and they put out some singles that are collaborations with people like David Guetta and uh, I think Ahimsa, and some of which I like and some of which I'm like, that's fine. And comes uh, the pandemic and blah, blah, blah. And then, and then this year they release Songs of Surrender. It's beautiful. It's sprawling. Uh, It's not always as super effective, but it's always well done. Glad they added in some non-hits. It's an excellent collection, in some ways better than their greatest hits because of the non-hits that they had in there and because they mine from almost every single album of their career. And the best songs to me from it are ones that do genuinely something different and not just acoustify the song, which is not something I've ever been a huge fan of. Like, do it acoustically, but do it for a reason other than just, I'm doing a stripped version, you know, that's, uh, that was done in the 90s, and, uh, you know, they, that was when it was probably done better than any other time. Some of the lyric changes work, some are, meh, you know, pushing a little bit. It's interesting that there are no songs from October, not even Gloria, none, and yet, this album, of all their albums, sounds the most like October. So maybe that was their way of saying, well, we didn't want to throw anything on there. We already have 40 freaking songs, but we're going to, you know, give an homage to October by producing it. The Edge produced it uh, very much like a lot of that album. Who knows? I have no idea. I'm going to go more with the ones that I didn't love because I love so many of them, especially if you don't listen to it all at once. Like I said last week, it's a shorter list ones that I didn't love. One, mm, with the streets of a name, fine. Walk On and Pride, those lyric changes are okay. Pride especially, important lyric change. I think it was worth it. And there's some cool stuff with choirs and things. Uh, Walk On is for Ukraine, so that's neat. But I won't say they were my favorites. Uh, Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses? Didn't do enough new for me. Sometimes You Can't Make It on Your Own. Eh, I like the original better. Joey Ramone, I'm not a fan of either version. Uh, If God Will Send His Angels, not much. Desire? Doesn't work as well as an acoustic, although the sound of the acoustic is amazing. Uh, Until the end of the world, I thought something more would be done with it. Peace on Earth was never one of my favorites. Sunday Bloody Sunday and I will follow simply because there's no possible way you can compete with the originals on those two. You can't. The sound is too uh, germane. I mean, whatever. Uh, It's integrated into the writing, really. And then 40, yeah. You know, it works better as kind of that soaring ambient song than it does as an acoustic. Big takeaways for you two before I get to the songs and um, winding this long-ass episode up. They've always been more experimental than they've been given credit for, and their lesser-known albums are often dismissed for that reason but are essential listening if you want to understand the band. They've done more changing and shifting than a casual fan or a myopic critic would care to notice or understand and if you are really following along you will realize how much changing and shifting they've done and how pretty much all of it has been deliberate they more than any band in history with anywhere near their longevity have never settled for repeating themselves or becoming their own tribute band they're always challenging themselves to do and be more and different and better that's huge to me They're one of the best live bands in history for musicianship, for entertainment, for the connection they have with the audience, for the spectacle, for rising above the moment and making it into something greater. Whatever else you want to say about you two, that is a hundred percent true. The edge should be on everybody's great guitarist list. He proved that you didn't need to shred to be innovative and amazing, even though some of his licks are shred worthy. Uh, uh, Glor, like Gloria, when you listen to Lick for Gloria, that's, that's one, that's a perfect example. He proved that sound and ambience and arranging in the way you produce your sound and how you fill the room is as important as the notes themselves. And that so many of their successes were due to timing, but that but not by accident. To my mind, they didn't just fall into the zeitgeist, they were paying attention to it. So, ba- um, you know, albums like War. Joshua Tree, ak Baby, All That You Can't Leave Behind, hit, timed perfectly, because they were paying attention to the world, and they knew what they felt the world needed, at least from them as a band. I'd love to hear your opinions on all this. Uh, The songs I'm going to spotlight are a song from Rex EP, Distance to Empty, called Believe the Lie. And U2's all over my music. I've said it before. Uh, there's no possible way to separate uh my music from their influence. I'll put it that way. Even things that you might not realize. Certain ways I sing, certain type ways I hit high notes, a song like Break You and, and Mine Alone from last week. Believe the lie I spotlight, because it has that same duality that a lot of U2 songs have, where it's talking about love and wanting to. Believe in, um, as the world is falling apart, that you have something to hold on to that you can believe in, even if you know deep down it's not necessarily true or completely true or, the, or you, you're creating a partial illusion. It also has a haunting piano, the way a lot of their stuff has had throughout their career. It combines ambient rock and electro- um, I have soaring vocals, you know, especially at, at the end, but throughout that are, you know, I don't sound like Bono, but I have a certain rounded tone and a keening quality that uh, is akin to what he does. I think it's a good way to say it. And so that's why I'm spotlighting that song coming up soon. And after that, my live version of Stay Far Away So Close, which is just sort of a, uh, a little treat. Thank you for listening for so long. Uh, Again, one of my top fave songs of U2, and I really enjoy doing this live. Uh, Are you a U2 fan? If not, you've wasted over an hour. Uh, Have you been able to follow them through all their changes as a fan, and despite any media backlash or being thrown initially by the changes that they were doing? If you're not a fan, did you used to be, and you're just not anymore because you only like one or two phases of their career? Or did you never like them and there's a reason why? You know, do you focus more on Bono and his uh, extracurricular activities than you do on the music itself? What do you think most defines them as a band? I'd love to hear all of this from you because as always, my objectives here are music conversation and connection. Thank you for hanging with me and I've got a very special episode for you coming up next week.
2: you stop in for a pack of cigarettes you don't smoke don't even want to hey now check your change dressed up like a car crash your wheels are turning but you're upside down Say When it hits you You don't mind Because when it hurts you You feel alive Hey now Is that what it is? Red light Grey morning, you stumble out of a hole in the ground. A vampire or a victim? It depends on who's around. You used to stay in to watch the adverts, you could lip sync. To the talk shows And if you look You look through me And when you talk You talk at me And when I touch you You don't feel a thing If I could stay Up with the static and the radio, with satellite television, you could go anywhere—Miami, New Orleans, London, Belfast, and Berlin—and if you. Listen, I can't call, and if you jump, you just might fall, and if you shout, I'll only hear. Just the bang and the clatter as an angel runs to ground. Just the bang and the clatter as an angel hits the ground.
1: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.